Reading today is from the Gospel according to Luke. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was ruler of Galilee, and his brother Philip ruler of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias ruler of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah. The voice of one is crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain shall be, and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I've been thinking about sin all week, which depending on your experiences is either something you expect a pastor to do always or never. John's invitation to repent And be forgiven for our sins has sin on my mind. The state of the world has sin on my mind. Last night's football game has sin on my mind. (laughs) We don't speak of sin much around here. Like so many words, the misuse of it has led to the disuse of it. Sinners became such a brand that we don't want to label people in that harsh light. So we talk about our mistakes, our issues, our problems. Sinner sounds like someone who is condemned to a permanent, irreparable condition. Everyone makes mistakes, sounds temporary, more compassionate. It certainly distances the action from the actor. We mainline church people on the compassionate end of the spectrum make allowances for people's background, for their history. I heard an African-American man say recently, graciously, that he believes a major factor in racist actions is that hurting people do hurtful things. He recognizes that the bad acts that people commit aren't a simple calculus. This is the right choice. This is the wrong choice. Today I think I'll take the wrong choice. But a complex equation of their upbringing, the hardships they've endured, their natural desire to place the difficulties that they have experienced in their life on someone else, the reaction in the face of a changing world in which the changes they perceive are harmful to their people. What he didn't call the racist acts, probably because he did not want to sound judgmental, is sin. And yet, when we use the working definition that so many of us grew up with, 
Sin is that which separates us from God and from one another. What else is it that we call those acts? There's no way that racist acts, even racist thoughts, do not put separation between us and God and us and one another. Anytime we determine the value of someone else based on their background, their outward appearance, their ethnicity, their homeland, their religion. We have affronted God by demeaning someone created in God's image. And we have affronted the other person by reducing him or her to a stereotype. And we have affronted ourselves by allowing the ugliness that is deep within us to go unchecked. But as with all sins, the remedy can't just be a preacher saying, don't do that. Don't be like that. Sin is too pervasive. It's deep within us. It's supported by those that we keep ourselves around. Sin is easily rationalized. And, worst of all, I think, we are convinced that we are to solve our problems. And if we have a problem that we can't solve ourselves, then we are, are loath to admit it even exists. If we don't name it, then we don't have to deal with it. In her terrific little book, Speaking of Sin, The Lost Language of Salvation, Barbara Brown Taylor says that we are unwilling to name sin and until we are, then we will not be ready to receive salvation. In fact, she writes, sin is our only hope. Did you hear that? Sin is our only hope because the recognition that something is wrong is the first step to setting it right. There is no help for those who admit no need of help. Those people who went into the wilderness seeking out John the baptizer accepted they needed help. Faithful participants in addiction recovery groups recognize that they need help. But somehow, the church has gotten to be a place where we are afraid or unwilling to admit we need help for our sinfulness. That we are sinners. We don't like that label. We don't like that reality. We don't want to need anything, even salvation. It's ironic that the Christmas Christian story begins with Mary being told that her son will be the Savior. And then along comes John who says that we need to repent and and not too long after that, Jesus comes and says the same thing. And our response has become, yes, 
those people do need to repent. Well, you know what? No one really needs to repent anymore. That's from ages past. Or, what would happen if I actually admit that I do need to repent? It's not hard to imagine how things might go wrong if you admitted your need to repent. Those who are uncomfortable with your honesty or who don't want to be implicated themselves will be tempted to say, it's not that bad. Don't worry about it. Everybody makes mistakes. And those who think that greater penalties will lead to a better world, will be tempted to say, I'm glad you finally figured it out. Now you go on home and fix that part of your life and don't come back until you do. For those who want to follow a biblical model of repentance and reconciliation will fall between those extremes. I admire your honesty. I admire your willingness to name your sin. Thank you for trusting me with it. I pray that you will get what you need as you seek to make the changes in your life and that I can be a support for you. Let's talk about how I can support you. Let's talk about what the support is that you need. Barbara Brown Taylor said that she and a friend decided that they wanted to make changes in their life, that they wanted to do some things differently for the sake of God and that they would hold one another accountable for it. Accountability reminds us that repentance is more than just being sorry about something you've done. It's, it's also wanting to live in a better way, in a better relationship with God, in a better relationship with another, wanting to do something different enough that we're actually willing to do something to bring about that difference. It's like a punter who's told by the coach to go in there and punt that ball and then decides on his own that he'll just run that ball. And he realizes pretty soon thereafter that he should not have run that ball. And it costs his team seven points, and it costs his team momentum, and there's a potential it's going to cost his team a win. And when he gets back to the sidelines, he has a decision to make. The next time I go in the game, am I going to punt the ball, as the coach says, or will I try to run it again? The coach says, punt the ball. Punt the ball. And you make a commitment that... That though you're sorry for what you've done, the next time you'll try to do what you were told to do. And then the next time you'll try, and for the rest of your career underneath that coach, you'll try to do what you are told to do. Saying sorry without making any changes is not repentance. The sin that Barbara Brown Taylor decided she wanted to change in her life is going to sound to you like just a bad habit. Because it has to do with how she treats others and how she thinks of God. And because the word sin isn't just for those really awful things, Barbara says that her chronic tardiness 
is sin. She says that her tardiness both disrespected the people that she was to meet with, and it was a form of blasphemous idolatry. Because the reason she was tardy so often is she wanted to do that one more thing that she needed to do before she left because she couldn't trust God to take care of what God had promised to take care of. Barbara asked her friend to help her change. And this is what she wrote about their weekly conversations. My friend never badgered me. She knew that was not her job. Her job was simply to keep reminding me of what I said I wanted and to help me explore my enormous resistance to change. Barbara says she was used to people sympathizing with her for her mistakes. And she was used to the punishments she received when she made those. But not being supported in her bid to change was also customary. And to have someone actually say, yes, I'll help you make the changes that you seek to make. It's extraordinary. We picture John the baptizer standing in the Jordan River wearing his strange prophetic clothing, attacking everybody who walks near him for their failure to obey God's laws and their participation in systems that mistreat others, that he just railed against them constantly, mercilessly. That's how we think of John. It's true, John used some strong language. You'll hear some of that next week when this story is finished. But he also offered next steps. You'll hear that as well. A way to begin new life which is merciful. Repentance has always meant more than just being sorry. It means putting practices in your life that lead to a different kind of life, a holier life, the God, life that God wants for you, a life that you ultimately want for yourselves. That's what John wants for us, that we choose this kind of life that we become less and less encumbered by that which separates us from God and from one another and more free to go in the ways that God calls us. He wants us to be those who will live a life that prepares the way for the Lord, that, that makes His paths straight. He wants us to fill in every valley and to bring low every mountain and the crooked to be made straight and the rough smooth so that our Lord has an easier time getting to us and to His people and that we and His people have an easier time getting to Him. He wants us to get all these barriers out of the way, out of our way, out of other people's ways so that we can get to God and God can get to us. That's what John wants for us, which is not a merciless thing. It is a merciful, merciful thing to want that for our lives. And what I notice about that job he puts before us, that job of, of making the ways straight for the Lord, is that it can't be done alone. We want to walk on a straighter path. We need a guide who knows the way the path goes to show us how to do that. 
If we're to fill in the valleys of privation, then we need others to show us how to be generous and to be generous with us. If we're going to level the mountains, then we need those who are going to help us tear down those barriers because we can't tear them all down by ourselves. You can't do it alone. I can't do it alone. If we're going to join the Lord in welcoming all flesh, then we need someone to whom we can say, help me. Because there is some flesh that I'm not yet willing to welcome. In His mercy, what John wants for us is the joy of less sin. More holiness. Less guilt. More forgiveness. Less brokenness. More healing. And that we might want the same for ourselves and want it enough to actually do the hard work required to make those changes. John's word of repentance is not just something for those days gone by. It's a word for the ages, at least for those with ears to hear.